This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordell. We have a full cave tonight. With me is Cerise Howard, Alexandra, Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Good evening. Hello. We're jostling for space in the cave. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Emma. <laughs> On tonight's show, Keanu Reeves is back in full vengeance and shooting people in the head mode in John Wick Chapter 2. We're also going to take a look at the 1950 Japanese classic Rashomon, which will be screening in an upcoming retrospective season uh, that's about to start on the legendary filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. But before we get on to that, uh, a more recent Japanese film, After the Storm. This is the new film by the acclaimed and much-loved filmmaker uh, Hirokazu Kurieda. Am I pronouncing that right? Look, that's in the ballpark, I'd say. Hirokazu Kurieda. That's just... Yeah. Coriander. They're thereabouts. Great. Mm. Don't uh, say coriander. No. <laughs> that would be disrespectful. We should know how to say his name but by tasty. now. <laughs> because we have actually covered many of his previous films before on Plato's Cave. I think mm. collectively there's enough of us who are, who are major fans. I know Josh Nelson was a huge He's yeah. still a huge fan. Remember, <laughs> don't talk about Josh in the past. He's still alive and thriving. <laughs> Shouting at his radio, I suspect. <laughs> After the Storm premiered around about this time last year at the Cannes Film Festival, and it's had a number of film festival screenings in Australia, but it's now been released in Melbourne at Cinnamon Nova. Now, as is the case with many of Corita's films, After the Storm is a family drama. The central character is Ryota, a once acclaimed novelist who now works for a private detective agency. He gambles compulsively and attempts to pay child support so he can spend time with his son. In the days leading up to a major typhoon that's about to hit, he has to navigate his strained relationship with his sister, mother and ex-wife, his fear of becoming like his father and his self-destructive and jealous tendencies that threaten the one really good thing in his life, which is his son. Now, where do we all stand on Corrida? I just said that there's a lot of us who are big fans. I am a reasonably big fan. I mean, still walking, I think, some of the... That was from last last decade, wasn't it? I think that's one of the great films of... Um, 2008. There we go. That's one of the great films of the 2000s, and Afterlife is a, a gorgeous film as, as well. And I've enjoyed most of his recent films... Yeah, I've adored I Wish. Uh, yeah, I love I Wish the, too. The that was two or three films ago, wasn't it? Yeah, only two or three films ago. Yeah. And before that, a quite uncharacteristic film called Ear Doll, um, a magic <laughs> realist fable with a slight sort of pervy twist to it. Well, because he mostly <laughs> does these gentle family dramas, but mm. a few times he's delved into the kind of fantasy world and well, fan, not fantasy landscape with Air Doll and Afterlife, which are yeah. these kind of magical realist films. Yeah, and, and they're great as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's a very gifted filmmaker. Well, his background's in documentary filmmaking, is that correct? Mm. I do believe that's, so. That's, yeah. And I think yeah, that you really, I mean, especially in, in After the Storm, I think you really get that feeling because the synopsis that, you gave Thomas. I think you know it ticks all the boxes. That's what the film is about. Yeah, I made it sound a bit soap opera, didn't no, I? No, but, but there's I, more to it than that. I think on paper that's exactly right. But yeah. there's something about his style of filmmaking that is almost it is this kind of observational. I, I don't think I'd go as far as verite or anything like that. But it is there's a it's like this sort of very warm observational drama, is mm. it, um, the, the, unintrusive direction. Yeah, and just. Sort of, yeah. There's a real sense of scale. I, he's one of those directors that I wish that I knew more about because the the passion that people admire him with is is something um, particularly through 
uh, my work at Senses of Cinema, I'm, um, we've, we've got some pieces coming up in the June issue on the upcoming Melbourne Cinematheque um, season on, on his work and there's a huge amount of films playing and I was really struck by the passion with which people wrote about his filmography but also the diversity of the critics that wanted to write about him which is something that I don't usually find um, a huge amount, just people from really, you know, people into genre, people who were genre critics or um, people from different regions, academics, people that wouldn't necessarily always come together, came together with the same intensity to talk about his work. He's got mm. a sensibility that you don't expect, I think, from Japanese cinema. It's a, He's a very, very Japanese filmmaker, but often when we think about Japanese cinema, we either think about that kind of Akira Kurosawa samurai epic, which we will be getting on to much later in the show, or you think of Uzo's very still, steady, um, everything shot. Ozu, Uzo something oh, else. Yeah. <laughs> dear, oh dear. It's Greek. I like them both. They both have a lot to recommend them. I, hey. would, like to, I would like a double bill, actually, yeah. of oh, those no. things together. And now I've got a mental block. What's his name? Ozu. Ozu, Ozu. thank you, not Uzu. No. But, but when we think of that, that, that very, very incredibly still-mannered, measured, beautifully meditative yeah. cinema, or there's, you know, the kind of extreme Japanese the, cinema, which we get yeah. as well. Suzuki, kind of Takashi Miike. Yes, yeah, on Sona, all those yeah, yeah, guys. Yeah. And spoiler, Suzuki's going to come up when we talk about John Wick Chapter 2 a bit later. I wouldn't Suzuki. be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Suzuki always comes up. Well, I know. But I'm- then you've got Coriator, though, who, who does make naturalistic dramas, but they're really... Um, they're, they're really accessible. You don't, I don't feel like you have to work to watch these films. They don't mm. feel slow. Uh, the dialogue crackles along. The characters are really richly uh, created. I mean, I, I was in love with this film in the opening scene. Just yeah, the conversation too. between, you know, this guy's sister and his mother and then we, when he enters the film, the kind of slightly passive-aggressive kind of barbs they're throwing at each other and the wit and, and the kind mm. of funny put-downs. I mean, that family dynamic, I feel found very identifiable actually um you kind of love them but they drive you insane as well and they can't help sticking in that dagger all the time um and the fact that they were sort of very self-aware of all the metaphors as well i I love the fact that every time they said something profound or commented on the typhoon approaching one of them said oh that's clearly very metaphorical is it i thought that that lightness was really fun there's a there's a line in the film that's repeated all the way throughout and if you were doing you know year 10 media studies it would be what you would put on your homework sheet as the theme. Remember when you used to have to look for the theme of the text, which is a line which was something along the lines of um, I didn't expect things to turn out this way. And you hear it the first time and it's a bit of a clanker, but it's delivered in such a way that it's consciously a bit of a clanker. Who says it first? Um, Can a you cl- remember? The client. The client. client. A, 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 and the grandmother says it last. And later on, and it's just a phrase <laughs> that keeps coming up very deliberately yeah. and very self-reflexively and very very funnily. Very, I mean, it's such a warm film. It's just such a, such a warm film. And I do think, you know, we're talking a lot about... Um, you know, director as author here, but I don't think that you can really underestimate his casting. Um, I, I just, I mean, Kieran Kiki, who she's plays amazing. the mother, she's just magic. She's, she's incredible. In, she's in one of my favourite um, Japanese films from the last sort of decade and a half called Kamikaze Girls, which is super, super fun. She was in that. That's the first time I saw her. But Hiroshi Abe, who played Ryoku, who is hot. (laughs) I know that's not woke. I've been told it's not woke to keep mentioning people are hot. He's really hot. He's kind of got a bit of a Western look about him, doesn't he? Yes. He's he's an attractive man. He looks a bit like my dad. My dad was Japanese. Is your dad hot? (laughs) I don't want to pass judgment on that. Is this not where we want the show to go? Yeah, that that wasn't. But but he does kind of, he has that kind of Western look. (laughs) The hair. 
Yeah. I'm just going to go Thomas back and dead. keep digging the hole that I began when the <laughs> show started. I first saw Arbe in a film. Um, if you have got a thing for, I'm going a little tangent here, but if you've got a thing for those those really kind of hyper stylistic, um, vibrantly coloured Japanese films, so things like Helter Skelter, stuff like that. There's a film called Survive Style Five Plus by Sekiguchi from 2004, which is this crazy film that I, the first time that I saw Abe, it's got Vinnie Jones and Sonny Chiba in it. If you're looking for a film to watch, <laughs> please check that out because yeah, that was when I first fell in love with Hiroshi Abe. He's, he's appeared in a few of Creator's previous films yeah, as well. Whatever. He, has, he has a small part <laughs> in in I Wish and um and he actually he was actually highly acclaimed for his performance in Still Walking as well, which is very much if, if you're new to Creator's cinema, Still Walking is the one I'd really urge you to to, to seek yeah, out. Yeah, I think I need to see that. I haven't seen a lot of Coriator, but I, he certainly he doesn't. You, you all talk about passion and everything. I don't get the passion from his. Obviously, I'm just out of step with everyone else because it seems universal that he does that. I certainly don't dislike them. And it is a very easy watch, like you said. I felt that this one was a little bit long, but he does tend to be a bit long in his films. And it is a very similar part and piece to I Wish. Just I um, mentioning, yeah, very, very similar. That kind of idea of playing out, uh, you know, this drama. Low, low level drama playing out against uh, a natural disaster, which was um, a volcano. Yeah, it, it I wish it was yeah, a volcano yeah. that was constantly just putting a little bit of ash into the atmosphere exactly. without ever quite blowing its top. Yeah, yeah, yep. exactly. But I thought, found it was really interesting with that, um, the Abe character, because he was, would you say he was presented as a, a likeable character? Oh, he's a loser, and I think the mm. film is but is quite... But is that a likeable loser? You know how there's the likeable loser and the not-so-likeable loser? I think that it's observational, and I think that's where his documentary background perhaps okay. comes in. And I yeah. don't think the film, and that's what I really like about this, is that I don't think it actually passes judgment. Okay. Yeah, um, that's I, I really right. got the feeling that it. I, it I mean, he's the character is a loser. Yeah. You yeah, know, like yeah. The, you know, he's a deadbeat dad. He's a gambler. Not that you know. I mean, if you're listening and that's you, I'm sure you're cool. <laughs> I don't want to alienate you. Um, it was now more, I'm digging. Yeah, it was more get, interesting. Get don't, I don't. just, I just thought if that. Sorry, did you? Want to oh, I was about to say something very serious. Well, pause no. for a community service announcement. <laughs> Although I will say, yeah, I, I sort of agree with Alex. I think mm. he's a hugely flawed character who would be a pain in the ass to know in real life. But I think part of the charm of this film is we were also made to sort of he he does his character is endeared to us and i think yeah. you, you do sort of feel for him even though he just keeps doing stupid selfish uh you know irrational clueless things and i think that is why this him certainly is a very sophisticated character because yeah. he, he's so multifaceted well there were a couple of things that weren't so much it was all almost morally reprehensible a couple of things mm, that absolutely he did. but i don't think yeah. the, the film doesn't make him the bad guy you know, I mean, I no, don't... no. I was wondering whether it was more that it was making us feel like, oh, but he's a nice guy. And no, if, I... that, if it was the mother, like the the wife character, would every would that character be portrayed in the same way? I think, um, without spoilers, I think a lot of the, the ultimate, like that kind of overarching morality of particular characters. I think, in a way, a lot of that would depend on what happens to those characters at the end of the film. Yeah, okay. um, and I think that the film is very, very careful to stay loyal to the tone that it begins with. I'm trying not... Yes. I know that sounds a little bit yes. ambiguous, but no, I'm trying no, not no. to give anything away. Yeah. And that it doesn't pass judgment. There's no point that it sort of says, oh, this is good or this is bad. It just presents things for what they are. And I do, I do really feel that that goes back to his very early documentary... Yeah, there is also yeah. a key scene with his ex-wife towards the end where she starts to respond to some of his stuff. Yeah, and he, yeah. he, you know, again, I don't want to spoil it, but but her responses are quite strong, and I think 
I think you'd be hard pressed not to align yourself with her in that scene. And I think even, even he realizes, hot. yeah, even, even though he's hot, he's hot. Uh, I think she she makes it very clear that he, he's made She's assumptions. She's not bad herself. What are you saying? <laughs> Sorry, Thomas. Go ahead. Just, <laughs> we're just going to rate the hotness of the actors <laughs> in films from now on. Don't worry, um, that's tonight's show. <laughs> I am going to jump in though and say. I don't think this is as strong as some of his other films, and that's mm-hmm. because as much as I thought the, the main character and a lot of the leads were really uh, complex characters, a lot of the secondary characters were too broad, mm-hmm. especially the, the ex-wife's new boyfriend was a caricature. And, yeah, and, I um, thought so too. And the, the cheating woman he's representing mm-hmm. in the detective agency, I mean, she's even dressed in a leopard print, print dress. I mean, Not that there's anything wrong with that. If no, you're no, listening no, at home and you're wearing a leopard dress... <laughs> Thomas loves you. You keep throwing me on the defensive. <laughs> but, but for the kind of character she's playing in the film, it's a little cliche to, to see her dress like that. So you know, it's, it's weird that, that some of those sort of minor characters, I think, were very broad and just detracted from this film ever so slightly. So I don't think it's quite top shelf. I don't yeah. think that this is a good entry point. To his, well, I thought I thought the same thing. I think if you've never seen one of his films before, if you've never seen a creative film before, this is not the one to start with. Not because it's particularly dense or difficult, but I just don't think it it is the it's the shot in the arm that perhaps mm. some of his earlier work is. But it's a nice you know it's nice timing alongside you know the upcoming Melbourne Cinematheque um, season, yes. which is just going to be a knockout. Yeah, well, that's I that's, mean, that's the one to go to. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. pant wettingly exciting. <laughs> But, oh my god! Yes, we've heard stories about that. <laughs> Should I just stop talking? That's not going to work on radio, people. After the storm, it's playing exclusively at Cinema Nova. Uh, I don't know. Go along and see it. You're listening to to Thomas, Alex, Emma, and Cerise here on Plato's Cave Three Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Now, John Wick Chapter 2 is the follow-up to the stylish 2014 action film starring Keanu Reeves as an elite and almost mythical hitman who comes out of retirement to seek revenge for the theft of his beloved car and the killing of his dog, a gift from his dead wife. This new film begins a few days after the original film ended, with Wick trying, uh, tying up one final loose end and then finding he has to face the repercussions of his actions, which includes going to Rome to do a hit he doesn't want to do and having a large price placed on his head. This new film is directed by Chad Staleski, who was the credited director of the original film, along with David Leach. Uh, prior to becoming a director... Uh, Staleski had worked in the film industry for over 20 years as a stuntman and stunt coordinator, including being Reeves's double in the Matrix films. Now, who here went nuts for the original John Wick? Because a lot of people did. I, it's not it's not good for something that's a, a spoken form, but I love these films so much I almost <laughs> can't find the language to describe it. I went nuts I'm not for the first Keanu one. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we bonded. Strange yeah. things I went, are a force I went the nuts cake. for the first yeah. one. I went nuts for this one. I'm, I, I'm I went, nuts, I went for nuts for the first one after Alex told me to, to watch it mm. and, and did tell me that it involved the killing of a pet. So I was on tenterhooks for the first ten minutes of the film going, when, when am I going to see this pet thing? Because Hang on, are you one of these people who cringes when a dog dies oh, but you can terrible. watch hundreds of people getting massacred and you're fine? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. What is that? It's terrible. <laughs> I don't know whether that means... I'm more human than human or dehumanised. I don't know what I think it's a very common thing, <laughs> but it's still weird. But 
But but the dog had, uh, as you mentioned, a significant um, emotional resonance with him because of the dead the, wife. The death that of a pet has yes. a, it's not um, it's not collateral damage. I think it has a vital plot. Exactly. You know, yes. it's the centre of the plot. Yeah, it's like yeah. You, you killed my dog. Yeah. This is the first yeah. one that we're talking yeah. about. I think that, uh, well, we do have a dog, but we won't in this one, but we won't say what happens to this dog. But um, I, I, I actually found that um, I was hoping it would serve up more of what the first one did and it it did serve up more and, and maybe, yeah, more, really. Yeah, I think so- the, last, the last half hour of the second one, I think it, it just... Um, it, it just went somewhere that I wasn't really braced for just visually and I, I don't think that you can really understate the, the formal magnificence of these films. They're so bombastic and so in your face. They, they've got the colour of a Mario Bava film. And so beautiful. Um, like these, these rich yeah. jewel colours. Mm. I don't think it's an... I don't think it's a, a... And we're in Rome. It's I know. For Giallo. Fran- Franco Nero is Franco here. Nero. I, that I was, was here exciting. for Franco Nero. I don't. I think there's a really interesting parallel between the fact that the director was a stunt man and and the way that that the action sequences that are, are filmed in this a shot in this film and put together. There's something just so visceral and physical about it. It's. It's. I. I, I don't know whether I'm over reading that, but there's something about somebody whose oh, life is so physical. It has to be making yeah. this. this this hugely intuitive that the editing and the way that this film is put together just feels so fundamentally corporeal, like just so bodily. Yeah. It just Although is such I, a bodily film. I think it's quite a, a you know an amazing leap to go from stuntman to uh, film director and do so well, do it so well. Um, obviously, the, he's got a, a very close working relationship with Keanu Reeves, and that does come come out in the films. Um, I didn't think this one was quite as colourful as actually as the first one. Still beautiful. Um, for, the, for the start, for a little while, I thought, oh, are they going to do a Bridget Jones diary and just hit every mark the same as the, the previous film? Because uh, we had a bit of, you know, we're back in the hotel, which I love. I love the idea of a hotel where assassins go to chill out and can't hurt each other. It, it's kind of a weird, there's a kind of fantasy world in these oh, films, it's, it's, isn't it's there? It's a beautiful it's mythology. A, it's I it's love the mythology. It's a it's actually an alternative Bond film. Yeah, and very I guess much. So. There's a few points John where I thought of Bond or, or is, Kingsman yeah. is the other one. Well, that the Kingsman yeah. is an alternative Bond as well. It's kind of Harry Potter for adults because there's yeah. this secret society. You have these little hideouts all throughout the city, all throughout the world. Absolutely. And this actually plays more on that as, you know, the good yep. old way a sequel works, feed them with more. But it just seemed to work better than um, it, it didn't seem to to play a bust out of the usual mould of what a sequel does but it seemed to work better than other sequels I've seen. I don't know how I don't know what the secret ingredient was here but Franco Nero. Yeah. Franco Nero. Mm, that's yeah, the secret ingredient. Yeah, that could be it and Ruby and Rose. And Ruby Rose. Yeah. Well, I, will, I will pack a bong for Ruby Rose. I'm she's so great yeah. Yeah. I didn't recognise her. She has that, such presence. Yeah. I think that she's And no dialogue. She's just so I think she no just dialogue. has such a strong screen presence and I think that um, she's somebody that I get excited about when I, you know she, she does these sort of action films and stuff she's not done anything particularly Oscar worthy perhaps but I, I just I just think that there's a, an she's amazing performer presence. in there. Yeah I think she's star incredible. Presence, yeah. I think I'm the only one here who didn't see the first one so I came to this with certain expectations because I'd heard people I didn't expect to uh, rave about it and uh, now I see what the fuss was about because I, I got a huge kick out of this. It is stunning to behold it is quite um, there's so much visual splendor and so much physicality and Keanu is just the most extraordinary physical performer in this 
And in stark contrast to um, the lines he's given, he, he really says very little, and none of that is said for comic effect, weirdly. There are no lines like in an Arnie action film. He just says very little, a la, I think you know, the, the, the template was set with um, the character of Jeff Costello in Le Samurai. Uh, the, Absolutely. The, you know, the, yeah. Who's been credited as an influence for yeah. this film. Yes. I mean, that's I mean it's, it's kind of blatant, that yeah. the male villain, for instance. Yeah, the, yeah. the dapper, silent yeah. assassin yeah. who's somehow just beyond ordinary laws of physics and... And that well, weariness. Yeah, yeah. A certain I don't think ennui. I think the, um, the <laughs> one-liners don't work anymore. I think that most people are a little bit sort of... Oh, well, I was trying to put my finger that. on what is it that sets this film apart, and I think that's part of it. There is a sense yeah. of humour in this film, oh, but definitely. it's more uh, a tone which they which they really walk very nicely. There isn't the cheesy one-liners, and They're there not isn't yeah, and there yeah. isn't the sleaziness that you often get in no. action films. It, this isn't alpha male kind of heroics. I think that's the difference. It's a character who's just a lot more uh, appealing. I think we only we only get sort of the one-liners in Russian, which is Baba Yaga. <laughs> the boogeyman. Yeah. I, I, I saw so many things that this film draws from and they're all things I love and it worked yeah. them beautifully. So we're talking about, like you were saying, Alex Mario Barva, that, those sort of colours and, and Dario Argento, the, the certain lighting. Um, and this one being in Rome, though, really played on it that does. too. But I was also, as I mentioned earlier, Sajin Suzuki, he was uh, magnificent at backlighting sort of screens as sort of translucent walls and having expressionist explosions of pop art colour just happen behind them. And this film is so full of that. And it manages to work that into the mise-en-scene very, uh, in a very assimilative fashion. So it all makes sense. Um, you know, uh, John Wick's constantly in areas that are very luminous, uh, very lit, like subways or these extraordinary hotels and glamorous spaces. And even the catacombs are very well lit. <laughs> Um, but That's what you want from a catacomb, yeah. isn't it? Nice, not, nice lighting. Yeah, <laughs> and I think there's a certain uh, understanding of um, yes, this is a sequel, so things do need to be amped up a bit. For it does get that little bit meta, but without ever really going there. This whole sort of funhouse mirror thing, uh, which is a, a lovely mm. cinema that trope, yeah. one that's really quite Shanghai. familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is really, again, just upped. Uh, the, the ante is really upped there with this. And, and Enter the Dragon, too. Like, yeah, there's yeah. that real conscious... The other huge influence on these films, which the director has spoken quite openly about, is what they call the Gung Fu films. So yep. when Hong Kong cinema was at its height in the late 80s, early 90s, and you got also referred to as the Balletic Bloodshed films, yes. mainly John Woo was the key director. Mm. And I wonder how much John Wick is a very overt reference to, you know, this director, John Woo. And this was my entry because I adore those films and they are some of the most beautiful action choreography I've still seen today. Yeah, that, for me, Actually, um, this he would have worked with uh, Chad. Yep. I'll just call him Chad because I don't Chad's know. The Chad well, He would have worked with Yuan Wo Ping yep. who was the, you know, the the choreography master, stunt master of Hong Kong cinema with well, the, the Matrix. The Matrix yeah. was a beautiful yeah. entry point for a lot of this Hong Kong talent to come mm. into Hollywood. Unfortunately, it didn't always go to plan. Like a lot of Hong Kong talent was squandered in Hollywood, but the Matrix used these guys well mm. and, and properly. I have this disconnect with these films where I love them objectively, but I just don't have that next step into really going nuts like so many people have. And I'm not too sure what it is. I've thought about what is it that stops me from really going bananas for these films. <laughs> and I think it's because the, the, the gore and the headshots and the blood, they're very CGI-y. There's a lot of stunt work that is obviously being computer enhanced. Like when, when cars hit each other and bodies fall out of cars, you can see that's been done in post. 
And I think it just draws attention to the fact that it's not those John Woo oh, films, which were so physical and real. Because the aesthetics are so comic book anyway. Yeah, that it's, I thought it, that too. Um, yeah. It's yeah. all fake. It's all it's all comic book. It's all... Um, no, I, 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 I get that. But I, 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 think, I think I have an aesthetic that's so married to yeah. that doing it for real aesthetic that you got yeah. with those Hong Kong films for that me, I, I struggle with anything at CGI'd. For me, I think because I'm one of the very few people in the world who really does not connect with Quentin Tarantino's films and his love letter to similar reference points as John Wick is connecting with. Like, mm-hmm. I, I get from the John Wick films what I think a lot of people get from Tarantino films. Mm. It's the only way that I can really okay. describe yeah. the intensity that I kind of connect with these films. And I think the difference for me is that there's no wink. Yeah. There's no moment, there's no elbow nudge, there's no a a a. you know, there's no get it, you know, there's no punchline, there's no... there's no Or stunt casting. I mean, the cast, casting here all makes sense, so... Franco Nero is uh, glorious, yeah. you get, you know, it's Django, it's, <laughs> but it's not, it's not that kind of ironic knowing casting, you know, if mm. you're not excluded... Exactly. If, you're not excluded yep. if you don't know who he is, and I think that's a really big difference between what's going on here and perhaps what somebody like Tarantino might do, and that it's all a wink, it's all a conscious, overt reference... And yeah, I, I disagree with me, what you're saying about Tarantino. Yeah, but he just I, leaves I, me cold. I get what you're saying. It's a taste yeah. thing. It's not. A, it's, yeah. not, it's just a total yeah. taste mm. thing. But I just love the 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 earnestness of these mm. films. I guess the earnestness and the sincerity. That's, ref- that's of the refreshing. Yeah. That's so and refreshing. And it's like yeah. the first film is like somebody killed my dog. Now let's do a revenge film. And it's just there's no <laughs> ha ha. It's like no, I really love the dog. Like it's just it's just. And I'm like yeah. Dogs are awesome. And I'm with it. And I'm off. And it's like it's that <laughs> level of connection. <laughs> John Wick Chapter 2, is, you want to jump in uh, there? No, move on? I was no? just going to say, I, I actually find uh, there's... A, I'm, I'm going to talk about subtext in this film. Could I say that? Um, I know it's strange to say that with a John Wick film, but I actually felt that I really identified with it in this idea of being dragged back into bad habits all the time and this kind of complete roller coaster of lifestyles that we all live in this day and age. Like and, you villainous know, Russians? Yeah, yeah for a you regression? know... <laughs> But it really worked on that level. It had that frenetic. He's trying to get out. He keeps on getting pulled back in. He's trying to be a better man, but he can't. It's a metaphor for addiction. There we have it. It is, absolutely. (laughs) John Wick Chapter 2 solved here on Plato's Cave. (laughs) Three. Triple. From this Friday, the Australian Centre for for the Moving Image will be screening a program of classic films by the great Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, as selected by David Stratton. Now, one of the greatest and most influential filmmakers of all time, Kurosawa's influence on cinema throughout the entire world cannot be overstated. We're now going to take a look at one of the films screening in the program at Acme, and that is Rashomon from 1950. Kurosawa was already an established figure in Japan when he made this film, but this was the one that broke uh, through into Western markets and pretty much opened the entire Japanese film industry up to the West. Now, in this film, a woodcutter and a priest sheltering from a storm tell uh, a newcomer about a recent trial for a bandit accused of murdering a man and raping his wife. However... There are four different accounts of the story and the telling of each version reveals how subjective truth can be. Mm. Were any of us seeing this for the first time or is this all a rewatch for it's us? It's always oh. the first time with this film. <laughs> no, seriously. It is, it like is it is good, No, good call. Very I don't, good I don't call. think you can... Every time, I, every time I see this film, it's like being struck by lightning and I know that sounds sort of unnecessarily hyperbolic, but it is really up there with one of... If you consider yourself not even a cinephile but just somebody who likes movies... This is up there with, you know, Citizen Kane and, and a trip to the moon on on those essential films that changed 
the way that we think film can be. I mean, it's yeah. just extraordinary. You really, I just don't think you can over oversell Rashomon enough. It genuinely throws me every time I see it. Like I'm genuinely shocked and surprised, even though I know it backwards. I it's like the audacity of it. It's extraordinary. It's even just as a standalone piece, it is, it's like that, exactly what Alex said, but also in the context of it being made in 1950 in a Japanese film only a few years after World War Two, and, um, and Kurosawa, who I believe was his parents introduced him to Western cinema and so he, he grew up with it. It wasn't even though he was going through, he was uh, operating professionally through a time that was not a particularly Western-friendly time in Japan, let's put it that way, and then the US decided to bomb the shit out of um, Japan. Uh, so this film was really also a very a very brave film at that time to be referencing uh Western lit- literature, film storytelling, so overtly, and um, and and it did help him, uh, you know, open up Japanese cinema to the world, and ultimately um, was good for Japanese cinema. But I don't know whether it did him any favors at home. So even though he did continue, still continued to make many films after that. I think he made thirty films in total, or something like that. That's the figure. I yeah, yeah that yeah. sounds right to me. Yeah, and and this film always, like like Alex said, is just it's just so astoundingly beautiful. And we've just been talking about another film that overtly references. Uh, weather after the storm, a Japanese film, and and the weather plays a huge part in this mm. film, um, with that torrential rain that um, accompanies the the narrator's uh, retelling of the story, um, and there's a lot of wind as well. There's a lot of the wind in the trees, um, and and the, just that idea. I love the I love storytelling the different storytelling about different perspectives and seeing things from different perspectives and trying to land on the truth. And uh, this film just works all of that so beautifully with the the players retelling um, like a tri- – well, it was a trial um, situation, but – with the, them sitting there and, and talking to the camera in this very static, uh, locked-off shot, um, talking to the... The audience of the jury or yeah, the judge. We're the, yeah, we're the jury yeah. and it is asking us to to make up our own, own minds, where's the truth? And me watching it even every time I, I change my mind, but I think it's sort of the truth is somewhere within the gaps of all those stories, basically. There's a lot of joy to be had in watching uh, in each of these recountings of uh, what may have happened, the different performances that are asked of the actors in order to inhabit these roles differently each time with varying degrees of villainy, or um, collaboration in uh, the murder of uh, this this man who is um, <clears throat> who in, in one telling seems to be a, a better man than in another. Overall, the, the the woman doesn't exactly fare very well. But it's eleventh century Japan. It certainly doesn't paint a, a picture of progressive sexual politics. <laughs> There's a whole lot of victim shaming and blaming That's, going yeah, on in this. But, God, yeah. That's yeah. the element I find really hard in this film. That, that, that is, that's yeah. the hardest thing to I, come I can at. Run from with that in a minute. Twenty seventeen. Yeah, yeah, go like. for it. Well, I, I um, I, last time I revisited this film uh, was for my first book, which yeah. uh, in two thousand and eleven, which was a book on rape revenge film. Um, because it's impossible to talk about sexual violence in cinema and not talk about Rashomon. And, of course, the film concerns the central crime of a murder, but that murder is closely associated to a sexual assault. Um, And it's a really... This is 10 years before Ingmar Bergman won the Best Foreign Language Film for The Virgin Spring. 
uh, Russia Bond by no stretch was the first film to depict or to address issues of sexual violence. But I think it even today, uh, by today's standards, it's, it's certainly not progressive. But I think it's a really important film because it acknowledges uh, subjectivity and voice. And, and this is something that runs through even contemporary films about sexual violence is... Is, is voice. I mean, there's so there's a long, long history about films, uh, films about rape that have mute protagonists because it's all about these films make literal the idea of speaking up, of being heard, of being believed. And I think that Rashomon, if we're going to just look at this particular point, yeah, it's absolutely not a very kind of, um, I wouldn't call it yet contemporary in its sexual politics, but I do think that its structural, its key structural argument that there are different versions of this story, just even acknowledging that. Yeah. In 1950, totally. is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. That's yeah. what makes this film amazing. I mean, it often gets compared to, say, Citizen Kane, which also dealt yeah, with this I, idea I, of, yeah, the subjective telling memory of story, and, memory. Yeah. Unreliable narration. Yes, yep. yes. But in this film, you don't get resolution. You're just left with this kind of bleak sense of humanity is terrible, which then makes, and for people who haven't seen it, which then makes the final scenes extraordinarily moving and surprising. It, it may be one of my very favourite yeah endings of a film yeah um yeah on the, the the sexual violence element i um just from some random googling it's just come back to me now and i wish i'd written down the name but i read an indian scholar writing on this film and their argument was audiences at the time would have recognized this horrific attitude towards sexual violence and women in the film and how it might relate to their own society and he actually compared japan in the 50s to to to, to India when he was writing as well, saying it's not explicitly condemning this attitude towards women, but a lot of audiences would have felt very uncomfortable watching it play out that way and recognising this attitude in their own society. Well, look, even looking at American cinema, there's a film that I, infuriates me because it's so grossly underrated. Uh, Ida Lupino, who's more known as an actress, she was also a film director. She was a Hollywood film director. She made a film in 1950, same year as Rashomon, called Outrage, uh, which is an incredible film. It's 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 a, a it's a I wouldn't call it a rape revenge film, but it's a it's a sexual recovering from rape trauma film. Um, but if you look at Outrage back to back with Rashomon, I think it's quite telling. Um, if you're keen to kind of draw these sort of cross cultural parallels, because Outrage is incredibly progressive in some ways, in that it do, in in similar ways that Rashomon is, in that it, it gives it acknowledges voice it acknowledges difference of voice and and volumes of voice and the right to be heard and the difference the different ways that you can that that can be misinterpreted and that you know the idea in in this film that the audience is a judge but where outrage goes is very interesting and that you know that the only way to really recover is to have a man help you or protect you so it's really fast i mean i find this period a really interesting still get today absolutely absolutely but that's it's also that's a very uh the that cultural, historical Japanese um, idea of masculinity and femininity as well, you know. Um, it, it felt very similar in the way that it's played out in something like Os- Oshima's In the Realm of the Senses, you know, that idea of the, the withering woman and the really the masculine man, you know. And she she was shown, when we first see her, you know, on the horse, she's like this ghost, mm. this white, serene mm. ghost who Completely walks... ephemeral and... Totally yeah. unreal mm. and untouchable, mm. um, which is the interesting thing, which makes the idea that, you know, her being raped um, so much more alarming because she doesn't seem real. And then for her her performance as well, her acting performance, she, you know, in most of the stories she's in this kind of 
frenzy. So to go from that extreme to the other is really, you know, quite remarkable as well, but still being, you know, feminine in that. Yeah. And I'm just going to say, that scene where a dead character gives testimony through a medium Isn't chilled that the amazing? hell out of me. I love I mean, I, I talked before about how I was a big fan <laughs> of, you know, Twin Peaks and David Lynch, and I just keep seeing where Lynch got his ideas from and, and some of the yeah. otherworldly kind of speaking from other dimensions stuff. That's there in Rashomon because that's yeah. a... Just through the use of sound and, and the way they use the wind and the voice being ever so slightly distorted as if they're in a wind tunnel, it's a really creepy, intense sequence. And the sequence. performances are just essential. I mean, yeah. I think this is the great Mifune film. I, I know that's a really Toshiro. big call, but, but Toshiro, Talk about who's also manly, a, bit of a man. bit, of, bit of a fox. Yes, I know I've been big man. on the eye candy tonight, but I'll, I'll also pack a bong for Mr. I Mifune. will say this isn't his sexiest role, though. No, no, perhaps the, <laughs> no. the rapist bandit wasn't his yeah, corniest. no. Oh, my God. <laughs> the maniacal laughing and everything, but I'm... Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he is yeah. so good in this. I, yeah, I think he's amazing in this film. And they're was, all amazing. In there this was film. lots of scuttling on the ground too. He was very strong in the thigh muscles in this film. <laughs> oh my goodness! There's certainly a lot of scrambling. A lot of that combat is not the beautifully choreographed, glamorous. It's not John uh, Wick too. It's certainly not John Wick no. too. It's well, you, just, you get contrasting combat, don't you? You do. In, in you one do story, well. it's a really skilled, noble kind of fight, which is we respect each other. And in, in another version of the story, it's just so straight fighting. Inept. Same, yeah. with, yeah. same with the actual yeah. sexual assaults. Like one yes. version, it's almost a kind of um, like a renaissance, you know, uh, kind of seduction scene. Whereas in others, it's it's very much not the case. Mm. It's it's a kind of brutal, vicious assault. Folks, if you've never seen Rashomon, you've got to see it. It's one of those essential films for anybody with a vague interest in cinema, and it's going to be showing at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image. In fact, Rashomon will be screening twice during the upcoming essential Kurosawa selected by David Stratton season at Acme, and that print is courtesy of uh, Katokawa Pictures. We also spoke about After the Storm, that screening at Cinema Nova courtesy of Rialto Distribution, and John Wick Chapter 2 is on general release courtesy of Entertainment One Film. You've been listening to Thomas Cordell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen, Nicholas and Emma Westwood here on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show will be edited by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.